You know, it's kind of interesting that we're talking about revelation and we're talking about um, uh, the. Actually, today we start talking about a nation. Uh, we didn't even know that there were nations that were going to be spoken about, but one is mentioned today, veiled, but it will, that same nation will be mentioned in chapter 16. But the idea being is that um, nations do figure into prophecy. And what's so interesting about all of this is that when we come to Jesus Christ, the first thing that we realize is that we belong now to a new nation, a nation without a nationality, a nation without a language, a nation without a physical border, but this nation is in Jesus Christ. And that protects us in a way from becoming too nationalistic, becoming too patriotic in the wrong sense, uh, because we do belong to another land, uh, and we do belong to another king. And that is good to know. It's liberating, actually. But... It is always good to appreciate the history and the story of the place where you are. That's what a missionary does. When we were in Germany, uh, we got to really appreciate what Germany was like and all the different things there, and so that was kind of fun. And just for a minute, I would like to, um, not in a very patriotic way, but just talk about this interesting tool that God has used for the small slice of history, the United States of America, because that's basically what it has been, is a very interesting tool. Uh, we are a landmass that was found by accident, right? Some guy from Spain, who is really from Italy, was on his way to try to find India. Imagine how mixed up that was. And he bumped into this huge landmass, which was the continental equivalent of the Grand Canyon. Now, how do you get around that thing, right? And so here we are. And actually, very interestingly, I don't know of any other country that tried to be founded for religious freedom. I mean, when the pilgrims came over here, they were the first people who really tried to settle it besides the French and English traders who came over here. Um, they tried to come here for religious freedom, but the problem was is uh, half of them died that first winter, which God used to make the Indians feel a sense of mercy for these poor folks who are over there on the shore dying. And one of them, who had been captured twice and made a slave twice by Europeans, decided that he'd reach out to these poor folks and help them. What a stroke of luck, right? And that's kind of where we got Thanksgiving from. But God kept those people alive for some reason. And in God's sovereignty, in bringing this country together. I don't think this was ever a Christian nation, but for sure the people who founded it were profoundly moved by the word of God. So many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence were pastors or they were people who were um, very close to God. In fact, kind of an ironic thing in the founding of the country is after the Revolutionary War, they tried to put the Constitution together and they went all over England look, or, or Europe looking for constitutions that they could kind of cut and paste into the American thing and they couldn't find anything. And believe it or not, it was Ben Franklin not a Christian, who stood up and said to him, now wait a minute, guys, through the entire revolution, all you guys did was pray, 
And now you're not praying. Let's pray. So the non-believer called the believers to prayer. And it's been interesting, you know, because in doing this, even though this isn't what you would call a Christian nation per se, a lot of the devotion, a lot of the courage, a lot of the stamina, a lot of the um, soul of this country came from those kinds of roots. The people who laid down their lives to uh, fight for our freedom in the backdrop of the United States, God somehow put that there. And building on Europe, this country, this tool that God has used has, in fact, put together more Bible schools, put together more mission organizations, has sent out more missionaries than any other country on earth. They were able to do something back then that they could not do today. That's how much we've changed. Very interesting. You know, back in September of uh, 1814, there were two lawyers, John Skinner and Francis Scott Key, who boarded a truce ship in the harbor of Baltimore to um, appeal for the release of a doctor, Dr. William Bean. And as they were there, Dr. Bean was a, a great guy and everything. He had served both American troops and British troops, and he had been put in jail falsely, and they were appealing. This was a truce ship. This was during the War of 1812. And they got him free because he had such a stellar record. The only thing was they couldn't let him off the ship. And the reason they couldn't let him off the ship was because as they were appealing for his freedom, British ships were coming into the harbor. And they had to stand at bay because of uh, the people up at Fort McHenry. And they launched a 25-hour barrage of Fort McHenry. And because of uh, just the Americans being as stubborn as they were and everything, the British had to stay slightly out of range. Francis Scott Key and John Skinner were like a captive audience to this entire thing, and it started to pour. What a stroke of luck. And so in all of this that was happening, this 25-hour barrage, they got to see how God actually sovereignly played a role. There were, there were some casualties up at the fort. I think there were like 25 wounded and four killed. One was an African-American soldier. Another one was a woman who was carrying supplies for the the troops in the fort. And then, you know, bombs bursting in air. These were like fused bombs. But because the British ships had to stay so far out of range so they wouldn't get hit, they actually exploded in air. And there were rockets and all sorts of things. But one bomb made it through. It made it through all of that. It made it through the weather. It made it through everything. It landed in the powder room. Now, the powder room was not the ladies' restroom at that time. That's where you stored the gunpowder. Now, had it gone off, that would have ended, and our, maybe our history would have been quite different. But as it was, it was a dud, either false, you know, made in a way that wasn't right, or the rain put it out. What a stroke of luck. And Francis Scott Key was so inspired by that battle that before it was over, he started writing down words. And that day, when they hit shore, he wrote down all four verses of what is our national anthem. Which, I mean, everybody knows the first verse, but you know what's so interesting is that nowadays in Congress, it would not fly, right? 
Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand. This is verse 4. I love this verse. O thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land, the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just, and this be our motto, in God is our trust. That did not originate on the nickel, in case you're wondering. In God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave, or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Now, you know, compared to other nations, the United States has no history. Ask any European, they'll tell you. I've seen pieces of wood as headers over doors that is older than our country. In the book of Judges, 400 years go by. Israel was in Egypt 400 years, the United States, I don't even know if we'll make it, and who cares? But the point is, the United States has been used as a tool, a very good tool in God's belt. And in these last days, he is still giving us a chance in his prophetic plan and his plan of redemption to make a difference for him. And so as long as we have these freedoms, folks, we need to keep using them, because the day is coming like Jesus said, work while it's night, because our day, because night is coming when no man can work. And this is still our day to work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that um, you have a plan in this world, and somehow you, you had this land set aside, this landmass, and you knew what you were going to do with it. And it's not any better than any other landmass, and the people who live here are not any better than any other people. They are all your people in the entire world, no matter where they live. And somehow you have chosen to do some things here that have been quite remarkable. And we thank you for that. We thank you for all of us who are here right now that we're part of that history. And again, no better than anybody else. But we thank you that you've given us a message. We thank you that you've given us some freedoms. And help us to use those wisely. Help us to take advantage of them while it is still day and when men can work. And so we just thank you for all of that. And thank you for the men and women. Uh, sorry, um, for the men and women who are still serving this country, no matter where they are in the world. Amen. <laughs> I am so sorry. If I could get rid of that in me, I would do it in a second. Okay, so here we are in Revelation. Good, now I don't have to cry. Uh, so we have a chart. I want to show you the chart before we get going here. I want to kind of just draw you back to... Um, some boundaries here. We are still talking about the first three and a half years of Revelation. Now, why this is a, my view of Revelation is this, that it is generally speaking chronological. What we are reading follows in time. So after this, there is going to be something that is going to happen during the time of that seventh trumpet. There is going to be something that will happen to the two witnesses. The 
so there is a whole lot of history, and I think this is very chronological. What we are right now is coming up to, with the sixth trumpet today, we're coming up to the end of the first three and a half years. And these have been a very powerful, devastating, in some sense, three and a half years on the earth. The two witnesses are doing their thing in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is basically at this point untouched because of the presence of those two men. And the 144,000 are getting all over the globe, and I don't know how they're doing that, because the world is progressively becoming more and more third world, if you want to put it like that. I mean, that, uh, that's the only word that I know to put to it, under undeveloped. Uh, it was Einstein who said that the Third World War would be fought with nuclear weapons and that the Fourth World War would be fought with clubs. Uh, at this point in history, the world is becoming very clubbish and being reduced to a world that cannot fight with ammunition, is running low on gas, and I don't think the smart weapons are smart anymore. So that's kind of where we are, and it's an important place to be because what follows, and we'll, we'll talk about that just a very little bit, is pretty important. So looking at Revelation chapter 9, it says, the sixth, this is verse 13, when the, then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before the Lord. I just want to stop here for a second. So, um, this altar has appeared once again at a very crucial point because of what's going to happen. See, because what's going to happen after this is a lot of people are going to lose their lives. Within this first three and a half years, you have half of the world's population being taken out. So imagine four billion people. In the seals, a quarter of them get taken out. I wasn't good in math, but I can riddle that one out. That was like about two billion people. Now there should be maybe six billion people left. If a third of those get taken out, you can't fool me. That's another two billion people. So now we're down to... Four billion people on the planet. That's a lot of death. But anyway, before that happens, you don't even know it's going to happen yet. Forget I even said that. These voices come from the altar. Now, the importance of this, I, I mentioned last time, what altar is this? The golden altar is the altar of incense. It is not the altar for sacrificial offerings. But every altar carries with it the idea of sacrifice, the sacrifice of prayer, the sacrifice of calling out. And if you understand the golden altar, the, the altar of incense, it was when you walked in to the holy place, you saw before you the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. On the one side was the lampstand, that represented the light that God gave to the nation. On the other side was the table of the showbread that talked about how God sustained and nourished the nation. But what was that altar? Standing up there against the, um, the veil with incense perpetually burning, rising up over that altar and going into the Holy of Holies. What was that? That was the prayers of Israel that should have perpetually been offered up to fall into the Holy of Holies and down upon the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. Very symbolic thing. And we have seen this altar before. Okay. Um, in Revelation 8, uh, verse 15, 
uh, no, it isn't, Dan. <laughs> no, uh, verses one through five, I'm sorry. You know, when you get too much coffee, sometimes it really works against you. Um, the angel comes out, verse five, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder. In the censers, uh, the pr- it says in verse three, are the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Okay, so we're talking about that. These are the prayers of the martyrs crying out to God. And so when you have this voice from the four horns of the altar, the four corners of it, we're talking again about these saints who have sacrificed their lives. They've given them willingly for the lamb so that people could hear the testimony, so that people could be saved. Now, uh, just a couple more interesting things about this altar and prayer. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter, or, well, Daniel chapter 9 is a very key chapter in the Bible. Daniel's prayer is an amazing prayer. I mean, if we could pray with that kind of intensity and that kind of devotion and will, and you realize the prayer he's praying in chapter 9 is the prayer he was praying in chapter 6. Remember when Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den and they say that Dan, you know, if Daniel prays, we're going to catch him? This is the prayer he was praying because he had read the Bible that said, in Jeremiah, where it said 70 years would pass and then the people could go back to the land. And this was that key moment. It was the first year of Cyrus, the first year of Darius. He's praying like a trooper. These evil little men are not going to make him stop praying for his nation and praying for his city and praying for the glory of his God. What amazing sacrificial prayer. It lands him in the lion's den, but we know how that story ends. But here's the deal that prayer gets answered by an angel named Gabriel. And what does that angel do? That angel comes and gives him the prophecy of the 70 weeks. 70 weeks have been determined for your people and for your city. Whoa. Prayer is pretty important in prophecy. And then... I get goosebumps on this one. The 400 silent years, the 400 silent years where God promised that he would send his messenger in Malachi and then there's nothing for 400 years. And how how does that silence break? There is a priest named Zechariah and it's just fallen to him by lot to have to go into the temple and, and light incense on the altar of incense, and he goes in, and there standing on the right side is Gabriel, that same angel. And he announces to Zechariah that his son, who would be born, would be that forerunner. And again, the prophetic story kicks into high gear once again, and it's that Gabriel that goes once more and talks to Mary. Now, in terms of prophecy here and what it has to do with all of this, Jesus is talking to his disciples about how trying the tribulation was going to be. This is in Luke 17, and don't look there. But in chapter 18, he tells them this parable about the, um, uh, this judge who didn't uh, uh, fear God or respect man or whatever. And at the end of it, Jesus says, listen to what that judge says Will not God 
vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night. He will, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will vindicate them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Faith in what form? Crying out. And so what we have in Revelation right here is crying out. See, it's happening in two places. We're seeing it at the golden altar. And this is going to justify God's righteousness and what he is about to do. Because mankind has shed the blood of his saints. At the same time, the 144,000 are running around, praying like crazy. And then you've got these two witnesses who it says are able to call down fire and anything they want upon the earth. And it's making everybody mad. And what I'm saying is that during all of this, God is responding to the prayers of his saints. And so how appropriate at this point then to have this altar there. So let's look at the next verses. Verse 14 says, the sixth angel, they cried out to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of mankind. Now, you realize that in the first five trumpets, the 144,000 spread out over all the world. There is the opportunity for them to become saved. When we get past the three and a half year point and people start receiving the mark of the beast, that becomes permanent damnation for anybody who receives that mark. At this point, everybody is open. The offer is out there. People can receive Christ. It's desperate, but they can still do it. But these four angels are released. And John did an amazing job last week talking about the angels and the different categories and everything. I mean, really, it's a mess. And it's so good that God doesn't allow us to see the spiritual world because if we could see the spiritual world right now, uh, we probably wouldn't want to get out of our houses because it would be scary because of what's flying around here. So let me mention a couple things here about these four angels. Notice the, the exactness of God's planning. They have been held ready for the hour, for the day, for the month, and for the year. These are not good angels because God does not bind his good angels. These are angels who did something. Now, like it or not in prophecy, um, the minute that mankind fell, the minute that Satan fell, the minute that mankind fell, demonic forces play a part in our story and a part in uh, prophetic history. And these angels have something to do with the flood, probably. I, and I, you know, I mean, nobody really knows. I mean, the easiest thing for me to do would be to say, who has a clue and let's go on. But when you look at the Bible, you see Satan in chapter 3 of Genesis, and then all of a sudden he's gone. And then you have something weird happen in chapter 6. The notation, the sons of God, is referring to angels. These are the same sons of God who come before God in, Job, in, Job, in the book of Job. These are angels that did something 
and we're not exactly sure what they did. When you read Genesis chapter 6, it kind of makes your head spin a little bit because it seems like something is happening there that shouldn't happen or that we don't understand happening, but apparently it did happen. <coughs> Excuse me. And God put an end to it. I'm going to eventually dig in here and get a cough drop out. I do not have COVID. But I'm getting sick of taking Zyrtec night and day. You know, I mean, blah. So, okay. Second Peter refers to angels that sinned. Now, that means demons who sin. Let me ask you a question. How can an angel sin? I mean, how can a demon sin? They're kind of in an unalterable state of rebellion to God. It says of Satan that he was a murderer from the beginning and that there is no truth, that he has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature. Well, Satan is in perpetual sin. So what happened that these angels were somehow locked up? Again, Genesis chapter 6 uh, looks like it may be that point. In Jude chapter 1, verse 6, the angels that did not keep their own position, that is their own principality, but left their proper dwelling, have been kept by him in eternal gloom until the judgment of the great day. Now, <coughs> the one thing we don't know here is can God still use those angels for judgment? Let me throw a couple things out really quick. And you'll have to go home and you'll have to... Figure it out on your own. In Ezekiel, when it refers to Satan, it refers to him as the covering cherub. The word covering means guardian. And from that, um, there are certain lines of thinking that give us the idea that Satan's job and responsibility was to be a guardian over mankind and the nations. Okay, John mentioned that scripture last week where when Satan is talking to Jesus at the temptation, he says, all this authority has been given to me. And the reason it's given to him is because mankind has shown that they are not able to manage that kind of responsibility and authority. So Satan's guardianship now becomes like a prison um, guard guardianship. And so Satan has that authority. And Paul says that, and Jesus says it. And then another thing that enters into this is the fact that Satan wanted the worship. So rather than being ser served or serving, he wanted to receive worship from mankind. Okay. I mean, that seems to come out of Isaiah. And then the other thing is that Jesus says something really cryptic, and you can do with this what you will. But... It seems that, you know, we kind of use this illustration for mankind. We say that we were meant to worship God. And if we don't worship God, we'll find a God to worship because that's just how we were made. Whether we like to or not, we're going to find something to worship. What if the, these rogue angelic authorities were meant to serve us, and even though they flipped us, what if they really can't live without us? That would be bad, wouldn't it? When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he wanders through waterless places, seeking rest, but finding none. And then he says, 
I will return to my home from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And then he goes and gets seven other demons, more evil than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last estate of that man becomes worse than the first. Why would they find no rest? I don't know. But whatever is happening here with these demons and the fact that they're at the, the, the Euphrates has something to do, I think, with Genesis 6. And I'll just end there. But it could be something like this. It seems like these angels, rather than being unseen, tried to enter the story of human history. They did something that God had forbidden And God had to, as a result of that, put an end to it, and he had to cleanse humanity through the flood. I think these angels were part of that group, somehow, that was involved in the necessity for the flood. They wanted to be rulers. You look at Genesis chapter 6, it talks about men of renown. And somehow, in ways that I can't understand, whatever they did, they stepped over the line and God squashed it. So what if there are nations in the world that want to have the superiority over other nations? Maybe God is allowed to give them what they want. I mean, if they're not going to come to him, and there is no neutrality, spiritually speaking, in life, God will get them, give them what they want, except that what they want is not him but the other guy. These four demons are released, and we're not going to see exactly the impact that they have. I mean, we see this right here. But until we get to Genesis, or uh, uh, Revelation chapter 16, that's when the Euphrates dries up. Here it doesn't dry up. But when the Euphrates dries up, it says, the kings of the east come. And they are coming to fight for world domination. The Euphrates is kind of interesting that it's mentioned here too. I mean, I I don't understand why it's like that. The Euphrates and the Tigris are kind of like this, like goalposts. Crooked actually, but they're like goalposts, right? And so the thing is, the Euphrates is just about as long as the Tigris. And so, you know, I mean, you know, if you're going to dry up one, why not dry them up, dry both of them? I, I don't understand that. Why would the Euphrates be bigger? But here's the deal. Tigris is only mentioned two times in the Old Testament, in the, in the Word of God, actually. The Euphrates, 35 times. And what is that land between the two rivers? Meso, between Potamia, rivers. The land between the rivers. The cradle, even in secular dialogue, the cradle of civilization, where they think possibly the Garden of Eden was where they know the Tower of Babel originated. And so these four angels were somehow part of that group, I think, that stepped out of line and God has been holding them for this moment when the aggression and when the um, arrogance of man would rise to a certain place and he brings them out and he lets them do their thing. Now, this is where everything gets really muddy. And this is where I can run really fast, but I'm not going to get you out on time anyway. Okay. Verse 16. The number of the troops of cavalry was twice 10,000 times 10,000. 
I heard their number. Now, the fact that he says, I heard their number, means that he heard the number. You can check it out in the Greek and in the Ugaritic and the Hebrew. He heard the number. But the reason he says he heard the number is God telling us that number is absolute. He heard the number. And that number is uh, kind of a problem in a way. So, um, oh, am I at the, hold on a second. I'm going between notes and in the, the actual text here, so I gotta make sure I'm on the right thing here. Yeah, I heard the number, verse 16, that's all I need. So here's the deal. You know, nobody can understand the book of Revelation, right? And the thing is, if we can't understand it, then it can't be real, right? I mean, if we can't understand how God's going to do something, and it doesn't look historically accurate, then it can't be. And Revelation has gotten this bad rap. And John and I have both talked about how for years, when, the Roman Catholic, when, when Rome became the, the Holy Roman Empire, they outlawed belief in the Millennial Kingdom. They outlawed, it was against the law to believe in the Millennial Kingdom because the Roman Catholic Church was the kingdom of God on earth and they were gonna bring it in so you didn't need to worry about that. And here's one of the reasons, even though it says that Christ is gonna reign for a thousand years, ah, forget that, because there is no Israel. From 70 AD, Afterward, there was no Israel. And so if you were at 1300 AD, there was no Israel. Why believe in stuff like that? And if you got into 1700s, there is no Israel. So you can't believe that there's going to be a millennial kingdom. And then these guys like Darby and Moody and all of them in the 1800s, they start talking about the millennial kingdom. But you know what? They're idiots. And the reason they're idiots is there is no Israel until 1948. And there were no apologies, by the way. <laughs> but all of a sudden, this could be true. Who knew? Now imagine you're sitting there reading the book of Revelation. You know you can't understand that. This is just, the, in Germany, they call it a book with seven seals. Sealed with seven seals, which means you cannot understand it. But Imagine you're 101 AD and you're reading this and somebody says there's going to be an army of 200 million soldiers. <laughs> were there 200 million people on the planet? I don't even know back then if there were. And say you get to 501 AD, 200 million soldiers. Say you get to 1800, 200, that's impossible. It's impossible. It has to be figurative. Until you get to 1965, in the uh, May 21st edition of Time Magazine, where China boasted an army of 200 million soldiers. The exact number. It's like, whoa, dude. And so I think China's going to play into the story. You know, the thing is, You've got this number, and then you go to Gen uh, Revelation 16, and you talk about the kings of the East, and you go, okay, kings of the East, right? That could be Iran. Okay, uh, what's, what, what's east of the Euphrates? Uh, Afghanistan, although they'll take over the world. Pakistan has a nuke. India has a nuke. China's got lots of nukes. But who's got 200 million soldiers? Hmm. And you know, I don't know about you, if you're watching the news right now, 
and the way this whole COVID thing is playing out, doesn't it look like they might exactly, they might someday want something like world dominance? I mean, are these, uh, uh, the, the, I, I mean, Chinese people are great. I mean, Joe Chinaman is, is, a, is probably a wonderful person, but we're talking about governments and we're talking about national aggression from their leaders. And what you're seeing nowadays is not a sense of humility. You're seeing something a lot different. Uh, I don't. I know most of you are are, are worried about the um, the murder hornets. Are any of you worried about the wolf warriors? The wolf who? They have sent out a group of highly trained people to begin lawsuits in any country where somebody is putting China down. They've been working in France. They're called wolf warriors because they have this, this special wolf warrior guy who fights against America. Eh, whatever. But what I'm saying is, somehow this figures in and somehow something is happening here. So, we get to verse 17 and now this is where the wheels come off. Um, a third of humanity, um, and this is how I saw the horses, and John is saying this in a way so that we understand that his, this is his visual seeing of it. The riders wore breastplates, the color of fire, and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and, the, and fire and smoke and sulfur issued from their mouths. Um, you know, in ancient battles, uh, sometimes the armies did dress up their war horses, and put um, you know, coverings not only to protect the, the heads of the horses and all that kind of stuff, but to make them look fearsome. And I, I don't know what's going on here, quite frankly. Um, but you know what's interesting? Is that the people, the people who actually lived through this, they're gonna know the scripture and they're gonna see whatever this is and they're gonna go, I, that's exactly what it is. Look at that. He said it like that. And I don't know what it is, but, you know, it's going to be that. And they're going to, it, this is more written for them, I think, than for us. And then verse 18, and this is a little bit of a um, confusion here. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and sulfur issuing from the mouths of these horses, whatever they are. Um, so... Let me just say this, uh, ever since the 1940s, anytime we see fire, anytime we see smoke, anytime we see sulfur in the book of Revelation, it's a nuke, okay? And, and maybe it is. I don't know how 200 million people are gonna be able to ride on 200 million anythings. Um, this could be guys walking with flamethrowers, guys walking with smoke bombs, and guys walking with rotten eggs. I mean, that's where you get the sulfur, right? But let me, you know, just for the fun of it, I tried to be John Tillery a little bit, and I thought, well, I'm going to look at some of these words and see what some of them mean. And so John will be able to correct all of this in his next message, what I'm about to say. Here's the deal. What if it's biological? You know, and I don't want to get carried away with this whole thing about Wulan. I mean, those horses could be something that came out of the Wulan wet market. Who knows? They have strange things in the Wulan wet market. 
But, um, you know, and, and, and of course, we don't want to say that this, uh, this was a man-made, COVID-19 was a man-made thing, but isn't it bad luck that in Wuhan they have a virology lab? I mean, I, I just say that's ironic beyond being ironic. But anyway, here's the deal. Um, sulfur, that was the first word I came to that kind of tipped me off something might be going on here. Uh, when you look at Liddell Scott, in the meaning in the common Greek, it means fumigation. It's what they used for fumigating things. I mean, really, doesn't sulfur smell so bad that you think anything that smells it will die? So I'd want bugs to smell sulfur, <laughs> hoping they would die, you know? Um, but that's how they use sulfur. I didn't realize that. To fumigate. So during the times of like the Black Plague and that, they would fumigate and part of the thing they would use would be sulfur. That's weird. And then I looked for the etymology of the word fever. And so I went into Google and I Googled with all my strength and looked at the word fever. And you know what the word fever means? I have no clue because I can't speak a word of Latin at all. So I looked at the Greek word for fever, and the Greek word for fever is two words, and the first word is fire. Hmm. Honey, you're burning up. Get some ice on your head. That fever's just taking care of you. Burning up. And then smoke, I suppose, could be anything. But, you know, what's really interesting is that, and this is a little bit talking to John, so I'll blame this on him, is that there is not a military nation, I think, on the planet that has not experimented with biological warfare. In fact, John was telling me in one place that uh, there, there was word out that we developed something that was so powerful that they quickly destroyed it because it really had no cure. Well, we've seen what COVID has done. What if during that, you know, because the thing is, the word plague in the Bible can mean anything, right? It means strike. It means a catastrophe. It means a, a uh, cataclysmic event. Like in um, uh, Egypt, those weren't all biological plagues. But whatever is happening here is being called a plague like that, and it has something to do with fire and smoke and sulfur, and it will take out a third of mankind. And then verse 19, just uh, for the cryptic completion here, for the power of the horses in, is in their mouths and their tails. Their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Uh, again, I don't know that that could come out of the Wulan wet market, but I've heard, I've read all the theories. These could be... Um, uh, some kind of like tanks, or these could be like motors, Vespas, you know, like you go to Europe. I think in Europe they have 200 million scooters. These are special scooters, maybe, and they, they have the windshield that looks like a, forget it. Anyway, I have no clue. But the people who go through this well. Now, verse 20 comes down to the end. And um, it's very interesting what's said here. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, and stone and wood, which can neither see or hear or talk. So in other words, in God doing this, during these first three and a half years, he's still trying to push mankind 
to the recognition that they need him. Uh, I just thought it was ironic. Uh, how many people here um, when it, have ever gone in to buy an iPhone? Really? Okay. You know, one of the questions they ask you is, do you want it in gold, silver, or bronze? Isn't that weird? Well, here's the deal. By the time this happens, you can stand all you want and go, can you hear me now? And you won't be able to. Because eventually all that stuff gets knocked out. But there is something here where it's talking about gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. It's talking about stuff, folks. I mean, you know, we've had enough of this. And I mean, who here hasn't griped about people hoarding stuff for COVID-19? Right? Toilet paper and hand sanitizer and mirrors and shaving things for your head. You can't find them anymore. I mean, who, it was amazing to see what people afforded. But we are so oriented to saving our lives through stuff in this plastic thing that I have in my wallet. And God is saying, why don't you come to me? And they're resisting doing it. So that these things, if you don't want God, who's left? God is showing them who's left. Remember, John said last week, it's amazing how bad it could be, but God is allowing it to get bad for them. And they see that on the other side of this reality, there are these forces who are not friendly. And God is letting some of them rip through. And then one more thing, verse 21, it says, Nor did they repent of their murders, lawlessness. I don't think this is, um, I don't think this is um, necessarily just against God's people. Uh, Rajan sent me a video last week of, the, uh, of Indian soldiers up in Nepal removing the boundaries between Nepal and India, just taking land. You know, because in confusion, just think, it's just like supermarket sweepstakes. <laughs> you can go crazy, right? Why is it that in, when there's a riot in the town or, or when people are under martial law, people go out and break windows and, and go into stores and steal stuff? It's a no man's land. And so murders or their sorceries or their immortality Rality or their thefts. Now, here's one little thing. You know, again, I, I was trying to do the John thing. <laughs> you know, so I look at uh, these words and murders means murders and immorality means immorality and thefts mean thefts. And I go, God, help me. Give me something. Sorceries is from the word that we get pharmaceuticals from. Hmm. What happens in a society I mean, you know, we've kind of wiped that out where, where you look at, um, you know, even the time, you know, times during the 1700s and that opium dens and things like that. They've pretty much gotten rid of those things. But during this time, whatever it is, people will be looking toward, sorceries could be um, actually seeking the dark powers. Did you know that there is a real correspondence, I don't know if you know this, between the occult and drugs? The deeper you get into the occult in certain things, the deeper you get into drug usage because it's during the drug usage that you actually open yourself up to some of these spiritual things. It's weird. And, you know, a lot of kids, you know, they think, ah, it's just marijuana and it's just this and I don't have to get hooked on it. You never know 
what things lead to. And I'm sitting there one time using something with some friends of mine, and I put my head back, and I, all I can hear in my ears is, just let go. Just let go. And I didn't even know what I was thinking when I was hearing just let go, and I let go. And I spent, I would think, the next 15 minutes just trying to open my eyes and crawl out of the hole I just let myself fall into. The demonic stands right there with drug usage. And I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm just telling you what happened to me. But I do know from certain occultic things I've seen is that drug usage is right along with it. So here's what you got. And here's the exciting thing about where we are. And bless their hearts who get to carry on from here. This is still before the Antichrist desecrating the temple. He can't do that until he kills the two witnesses. Right? This is still before the beast and the prophet. This is still before the mark of the beast. This is before the lying signs and wonders. This is still before Satan getting cast out of heaven. This is still before what the Bible calls the great tribulation. When Satan will muster all of his forces, and thankfully it'll be very third world when he does that, trying to exterminate the people of Israel. It's going to He's going to try to make what Hitler did look like Sunday school. And this is still before all of that and then the bulls. The bulls are all called God's wrath because this is where justice becomes ultimately served on an unbelieving world because they have chosen to take the mark. They have chosen to turn themselves against God's people, anybody who names the name of Christ. And God, in these last three and a half years, will really let let loose. It's going to be an exciting time. But what about us? I mean, we're still trying to muddle our way through the uh, COVID-19 thing. But I would just say this. We've got this information. We've got to use it. We have to allow it to um, press us and and motivate us to talk to people about what's going to happen. They need to get, they need to know Jesus Christ. Learning information like this is dangerous. It's dangerous in a sense that if you don't use it, it almost becomes a judgment against you. I remember hearing uh, Penn Jillette from Penn & Teller. Penn Jillette is an abusive, arrogant, obnoxious atheist. And I'm, I'm saying nice things about him. And he came out and said that if you know this stuff, and you don't tell anybody about it? He says, no, I don't believe it. But if you know this stuff and you don't tell any, anybody about it, how much do you have to hate that person to not tell them if you really believe this is going to happen? How much do you have to hate people to keep your mouth shut? That's a great question. Not only that, it does something to your heart. It does something to your relationship with God or the thing you call Christianity. I've been working on some really tough verses and it, it kills me every time I get to these things. But they're in the Gospel of John. If you're reading a one-year Bible, you just read them this last week. But John says something that is really hard. It comes to the place where Jesus actually hides from the crowd. It's as though he did so many signs before them, they still didn't believe. And then he talks about what Isaiah said, that their eyes were were blind and their ears were, were stuffed and their hearts were hard. 
But it says, Isaiah was able to say this because he saw the glory of God and he spoke of him. He saw the glory of God and he spoke and that kept his heart healthy. And then John goes right into this next section. And so you have to see the connection. He says, nevertheless, many of the, even of the authorities believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. Lest they be thrown out of the synagogue. Because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. John is being very pointed. He is saying, if you see the glory of God and you don't talk about him, it does something bad to you. You begin hiding. You begin defining Christianity by hiding. Health is talking about Jesus. And here's the deal, folks. I mean, I'll be very open with you here. I can talk to any one of you, and it doesn't make me sweat at all. I, could, I can be pretentious and talk to you about God. I don't have any fear of talking to anyone in this room about God. So my car goes kaput this last week. And the tow man, the tow truck driver shows up and I'm sweating bullets. Because I feel like I got to tell him something, Right? I would be a dirty dog. I would kick myself around the block if I keep my mouth shut. And my heart is closing up on me. My throat is closing up on me. And here's the deal. Between Dollar Tree and Toya Motors, that's only two miles. I mean, what am I going to do in two miles that's going to be a witness to this man? But the point I'm getting at here, and I, I gave him a couple of tracks. He, actually, what he said is, you're looking for your next stimulus check? And I said, yeah, if it comes, that's great. But have you noticed how people are actually starting to think about God? And all of a sudden, he got really serious. And he said, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, people usually don't think about death. And we got into this conversation. I gave him a couple tracks. We had a great time for about 1.6 miles. But what I'm saying, folks, is this. And this is really serious. If you don't say it, to a non-believer, it does something in you. It turns into something else that's dangerous. John, the apostle, pointed to it in John chapter 12. We can't allow it to happen to us. We can't get in the thing of saying, you know, when I go to church, I talk to people. You know, sometimes we don't even talk to each other about Jesus here. We talk about the ball games. There's no ball games to talk about. We talk about COVID. You know, but it's out there where our witness matters, where those people are going to hell and they need to hear that there is an answer. There is a loving God. There is a Savior. And we got to say something about it. There is a blessing for reading this book. And I think the blessing in reading the book is after you're done, you go, I've got to go tell somebody. And you do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, None of us are worthy of our Lord Jesus Christ. None of us are worthy. None of us have anything better to say than any other person who believes in you. We have all been saved out of the fire. And in that fire, we saw there was another one in there with us. And he was watching over us. I recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ has been watching over me my entire life, even when I didn't believe in him. 
uh, rescuing me from danger, rescuing me from evil, rescuing me from myself. So much I feel like that demonic guy, the demoniac that Jesus healed. And Jesus, I mean, he, Lord, you didn't give him any training at all. You just said, go and tell your friends what the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And I ask you for that courage for everyone in this room right now. Help us to have the courage to get into a conversation with someone and just say, hey, listen, I got to tell you what God has done for me. I got to tell you how he's, you know, even though I'm afraid of this COVID stuff, how he's been helping me. Because there are people out there, when we start saying those words, they're going to latch on, and they need to hear this. Help us not to be believers only in church. Help us to be citizens of your kingdom, followers of our great king, ambassadors of the kingdom to come, and being willing to share with those who are lost that there is a hope, that there is a savior, and that there is life everlasting. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.